One day, Nelson Mandela gets out of prison and of all places in the world shows up in Detroit, Michigan. And I was just blown away. I said right there and then I was like, I want to do something in my life that's meaningful, but I have absolutely no idea how to do it. I'm Raj Kumar and you're in the DevX Book Club. Maybe you're a global development nerd like me. Maybe you work at the UN or at an NGO. Or maybe you're just excited to hear from some of the world's leading authors on the most important issues of the day. Either way, you're in the right place. Grab a snack, get a comfortable seat, and don't worry if you haven't read the book, you're very much welcome. Get ready for our discussion. This month's book club author is Dr. Rajiv Shah. DevX readers are probably familiar with Raj. He's currently the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, and he was notably the administrator of USAID for six years during the Obama administration. Prior to that, he was one of the early senior executives at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Like many of us, Raj knew early on that he wanted to make an impact on the world, but he wasn't quite sure how to do it. His book, Big Bets, how large-scale change really happens, opens with some of that early uncertainty. But as Raj writes in his book, that uncertainty was all part of an important realization he'd eventually come to. That large-scale change doesn't come from caution, but from what he calls a big bets philosophy, which says that it's only by trying to fundamentally solve, not just improve, pressing problems, that the world can truly be transformed. Hey, Raj, nice to see you. Hey, Raj, how are you? I'm doing great. This is going to be confusing. We're like, Raj, Raj, Raj. It's like that scene in... Uh... <laughs> no, what's the scene? That's that movie where they're like, doctor, doctor, doctor. It's like an old Chevy Chase movie, doctor, doctor. Yes. He's, he's like in a medical I know, tent. I know exactly what you mean. I can't remember the name of that movie, but I know what you mean. All we need is Raj Punjabi here and... Uh... <laughs> Actually, okay, so that would be the greatest podcast episode. Just find like six guys (laughs) named Raj (laughs) and you have a media platform. (laughs) You know, I got to tell you, literally this morning I was, I got a phone call from a friend who's a top executive at a big pharma company and calling about some vaccine initiative that she was hatching. And I found myself asking her these simple questions and asking her to think big. And then it struck me when I hung up, wait a second, I was just following what I just read in Raj's book. Um, and, and the book is really interesting. I mean, it's, it's both a memoir in a way. I mean, it tells the story of really a storied career that you've had in global development. I mean, I don't even need to really introduce you because people know you so well for the many hats you've worn, of course, now president of the Rockefeller Foundation, but administrator at USAID, you know, you were a director at the Gates Foundation, helped to really get that foundation established and, and during its early formative years. But I, I, and I thought I know you, I've known you for years, Raj, but I really feel like I got to know you so much better through this book, because it really is in many ways a memoir. And as well, it, it leaves the reader each chapter with a sense of uh, ideas of like really practical things they can go and do. Um, so it's a fascinating book. I and mean, maybe we just kind of start at the high level, which is around your life story, you know, like, um, cause I think it's the first time this is out there in the way that it, 
that it is. I mean, you tell the story of being a kid. You and I share a name in many ways. So uh, there was a lot <laughs> that, that I related do. to in your story. Uh, maybe you could just tell people a little bit about what it was like growing up as an Indian American kid, um, sure. where you got the, the bug to want to work on these issues. And and I'd love to just, I think people would love to hear more about, about you and, and kind of what got you motivated for, to start. Well, thank you, Raj. And thank you for having me on. And I'm such a huge fan of DevX and the DevX community. So this is a really special opportunity to have this conversation. You know, I wrote the book. I didn't intend for it to be a, a memoir. I really wanted it to be uh, a little bit of a how-to guide for young professionals aspiring to make a difference on big global problems that feel tough and sometimes intractable. And I feel like I had a number of lucky breaks that put me in places I never imagined I would be and uh, learned from Bill Gates and President Obama and Hillary Clinton, all these household names, but also learned just as much from people uh, that most people haven't heard of. Maybe some DevX folks have, you know, Dr. Sudarshan in South India or Molly Melching in West Africa. And I wanted to highlight their stories and what I learned from them so that people felt empowered to have great careers in this space. Uh, but I myself, I'm from suburban Detroit, uh, as you point out. <laughs> you and I are both uh, from Indian American families and communities. My parents were immigrants in the late 60s. They came, my my grandfather, I write about this in, in the book, my grandfather sold, uh, I've cashed out his retirement account. He was an accountant. Um, but he cashed out his retirement account in order to buy a one-way plane ticket for my dad to come to the University of Arizona uh, for a master's degree in, in electrical engineering. And they just had this amazing, blind, total faith that if you go to America and you work hard and you study and you're good, you play by the rules, you are going to do well for yourself and you're going to give your kids immense opportunity. And based on that, uh, my family kind of ended up here my dad was in California for a while, then ended up in Detroit, where he worked in the auto industry. So I grew up in an Indian American family in suburban Detroit, thinking, okay, I could be an auto engineer or a doctor. Uh, I sort of wanted to be an auto engineer, and my, I think my folks wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was, uh, it was a great, fun uh, childhood. I got exposed to global development issues young, because I would go to India and visit relatives some of whom were very well off, but they would insist we walk through slum communities outside of Mumbai and you'd see the way kids were living and playing. And it was just so surreal as a 10 or 11 year old to be exposed to that. Uh, and then one day, I think it might have been a senior in high school, Nelson Mandela gets out of prison after 27 years and of all places in the world shows up in Detroit, Michigan, goes to the River Rouge Ford plant and talks to auto workers, does a huge event at Tiger Stadium that was televised live. And I was just blown away. And I said right there and then I was like, I want to do something in my life that's meaningful, but I have absolutely no idea how to do it. And, uh, and the rest is, you know, recorded in the book. <laughs> Well, and boy, did you figure it out. I mean, like I said, you, you've you've gotten to be involved in so many issues, not just kind of the big brand name institutions I mentioned. I mean, you've had an incredible career from that perspective, but the actual issues you've gotten to work on, which you got you get into in the book, and really it seems like the point of the book, which is to tell readers that these really big, seemingly intractable problems actually have potential solutions out there and that there are people like yourself and many others who've gotten together and, and have worked on them. But maybe just staying a little bit on your, on your childhood and your background, because it, it really is fascinating to me. 
as a pretty young kid, as a teenager, you had sort of an internship uh, working with patients suffering from leprosy in India. Maybe you just say say a yeah. little bit about that story. Like, how did well, that happen? What did you learn? So that was just after college for me, and I was uh, and I was eager to kind of learn more about public health. We had met this amazing doctor, Dr. Sudarshan, who ran this trust in in a rainforest in southern India. And he said, okay, come volunteer and and work with me for the summer. So I went and I was like, by then I was full on idealistic, young uh, Michigan graduate, you know, and I was ready, ready to change the world. And I arrived there thinking, okay, I got this. And the next thing I know, I'm in, you know, in a rainforest, in a small hut, which was my room, getting like chewed up by mosquitoes, going village by village with uh, the staff and the medical support there and going household by household, kind of screening for leprosy, but also screening for malnutrition and severe acute malnutrition and taking kids who needed it back to the central clinic for uh, targeted uh, feeding programs and the like. And I sort of realized in that moment, like Dr. Sudarshan's this amazing guy. He won the Right Livelihood Award. He's just salt of the earth, was a medical doctor who gave up everything and spent decades building trust with this local community, a tribal community called the Soliga. And he ended up eradicating leprosy in that area, transforming health and nutrition outcomes, and even creating livelihoods for people with honey making and, and uh, candles and other small artifacts. Uh, but I realized in that moment that, okay, I'm not going to do this. I, I, this. I can't make this my life. Like I need to live in a place where you know, in, in, a, in a modern environment that was very different than that and just didn't have it in me to sacrifice. I mean, I went thinking I may never come back. <laughs> like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like this person. And I realized I want to do good. I want to do it at scale, but I don't have it in me to be the person on the front end who, who lives in a rural village for the rest of my life. I feel like so many young people who are thinking of a career in global development go through this challenging question. You know, you, people tell me, I, I think I want to go to the field, you know, I want to do the field work. And part of it is a little romantic and you got to see the reality of it. And it's not always romantic, right? It's not always glamorous and it is for some people. Um, it is the right fit, but, but for you, it, it wasn't. And I think that's just, a, again, a very revealing little vignette that you have in the book. You ended up getting your medical degree, as you say, but it was a pretty short-lived medical career. I mean, after all that effort, getting the degree, talk about the decision to not go out and use it, what that might've been like with your family. How did you land on that choice? Right. Well, so look, I always was interested in politics, right? And I always wanted to be involved in social change and social action at scale. And so when I was in med school, I was highly distracted. I kept running to DC and volunteering on this and that. I worked for Ed Rendell during his, I went to med school at Penn, so I worked in Philadelphia on, on a mayoral campaign. And I ended up uh, applying three times to join Al Gore's presidential campaign as something I was going to do after I took my board exams. Three times I got rejected. And so uh, finally, Gore had to move his campaign, if you remember, from D.C. to Nashville, Tennessee. And, some, and I applied a final time and they said, OK, now we'll take you. And so the day after my board exams, my now wife, then girlfriend, and I hopped in the car and drove uh, 14 hours from, from Philly to Nashville, ended up in Al Gore's mother's best friend's pool house for the next three months while I learned what volunteering on a political campaign was like. And, you know, that wasn't glamorous either. <laughs> the role I had was pretty, was pretty meager. I was mostly driving teenagers to the uh, library, Nashville Public Library, to 
copy microfiche stories about Al Gore's early career uh, because I was the only volunteer with a car and a license for that matter. And so uh, it didn't feel that glamorous there either. But one thing led to another. As you know, we didn't go on to win that campaign, even though I'd argue we had more votes in Florida than our opponent. Uh, and and I landed uh, through relationships there working for Bill and Melinda Gates right when they were starting their foundation. And, and Bill and Melinda Gates, that foundation features a lot in the book. Uh, I mean, it seems like it was a pretty formative experience for you. Like you say that you grew up with an interest and a passion for politics, but it feels like just reading between the lines somewhat in the stories in that in the in those first few chapters of the book, it was at the foundation that you saw the power of politics, right? That if you bring together philanthropy and public policy, that you can do really big things. Um, and I guess maybe maybe you could tell tell us just a little bit about what you feel like you took away from those years working closely. I mean, you got to actually work fairly closely with Bill Gates, ultimately. I know not in the very beginning of being there, um, but you, you got to actually work pretty closely with him. What, what are some yeah. of the big takeaways that you talk about in the book? Well, the, honestly, the big takeaway for me was learning how to make big bets. And, you know, whereas when I was in the village in southern India, it was going household to household and figuring out how to serve uh, actual family uh, in the conference room in Seattle uh, at the time, it was Bill and Melinda and Patty Stonecipher and Sylvia, now Sylvia Burwell, and just an all-star group of people uh, and and me, you know, the non-all-star at the table, uh, sort of, you know, trying to answer Bill's questions. And, and the first chapter of the book is called Ask a Simple Question because he just kept asking, you know, what does it take to vaccinate every child in the world? How much does it cost? And we kept going, bringing experts into the room who were like, look, it's too complex to answer that question. And it's uh, it's more complex than that. You can't think about it that way. But Bill was insistent that if we didn't know how much it actually cost all in to vaccinate a single child, we couldn't possibly understand what resources were required to vaccinate 104 million kids born every year. And we couldn't possibly change global vaccination rates from roughly 60-ish percent to you know, roughly 90-ish percent or, you know, our, our target goal and transform, you know, human health and child health at scale. And so it would have been the easy answer would have been, well, let's take the resources we have and do what we can. And the big bets mindset was, no, that's not enough. Like, tell me what it takes to solve inequity in childhood vaccinations and make sure that every one of these 104 million kids gets the full complement of available vaccines. And then we'll figure out how to generate those resources and those procurement mechanisms and that vaccine supply base and that human resource requirement to go out and achieve that goal. And, you know, even today, not every child on on earth gets vaccinated. And there still are too many children that die of vaccine preventable diseases. But 980 million vaccinations later, we know that that effort, the Vaccine Alliance, has saved more than 16 million lives. And I credit that with not just Bill and Melinda, but an entire global community coming together and saying, let's do this in a big, determined way, and let's make a big bet and see it through. I mean, there have been incredible successes from that way of thinking, and that's a great example. But it does feel like that approach gets some pushback these days, right? There are people, I'm thinking about the effective altruist community um, and this idea that you can kind of measure, you you have the, you know, dollies are mentioned a lot in the book. 
Um, and you talk about kind of doing the math, you know, and figuring out what is the return on investment from, from doing something like investing in vaccines. But it seems like when I talk to people in our field, there, there's a bit of a tension there. Some people are really attracted to that approach. Certainly people at the Gates Foundation. A lot of other foundations, I think, have tried to align with that worldview too. But there are others who, who think, think this is a very technocratic approach. You know, it's kind of like the McKinsey consultants coming in and, and it's losing a sense of what really happens, how change really happens on the ground, change that's locally rooted in communities. And I guess I wonder how you think about that tension. Um, and, and do you think there is a, a dichotomy there or is the way we're, we're debating this issue maybe maybe the wrong way to look at it? Yeah, I think the debate is a little misguided. I, I acknowledge that it's out there and it's been out there for a while. But, you know, at the end of the day, a big bet is not really about a technocratic solution or only doing what you can measure. It's a mindset that says if you're going to try to tackle a big global problem, come up with a way to solve that problem. And that in the book, I talk about three core elements of a big bet. One is finding fresh, innovative solutions. Like often we try to take the solutions we have or have had for decades and just scale them. And usually if they haven't scaled for decades, there's some reason for that. And, and there's much more space, as you guys have promoted at DevX for sure, for innovation and fresh um, invention in the field of development. So it's really a call for fresh, innovative solutions. Then there's a call for unlikely partnerships and alliances. You know, it, we often in this field, more than most, spend time with each other, right? We, we love ourselves and our fellow travelers. And sometimes getting to success actually means doing a deal with, at the time, you know, vaccine companies in southern India who were small volume producers and needed to become large volume producers. Sometimes I write in the book about uh, different humanitarian efforts that relied on the, the Somalia famine of 2011 when we called in Cargill and asked them to make a major donation at the port of Mogadishu because of Greg Page, who was the CEO at the time, and a relationship there and a real commitment to be part of the solution. And, and, some, and, then, and then the third big component is measuring results. And you're right, uh, we shouldn't just focus on things that are easily measurable. But if we don't measure results, uh, we're, it, we really have a hard time uh, delivering impact consistently over time. I mean, do you think these big bets can come from anywhere? I'm, I'm just imagining, you know, somebody saying, well, these big bets sound like they come from Seattle. You know, they come from the folks with the money, presidents of foundations, but development really comes from or should come from local communities. It should be, you know, indigenous. Do you, when you think about the advice you're giving in the book and the way you think about what a big bet actually is, can it really come from anywhere? And should it start from kind of the communities that are living living with the challenges themselves? Yeah, 100%. And in fact, on every, every story in the book, whether it's vaccination or efforts to fight pandemics here at home and, and in Africa, or efforts to address hunger, uh, even domestic efforts to I have a story about Mitch Landrew and his efforts as mayor to take down the statues, the Confederate statues in New Orleans. All of those efforts are grounded and only succeed if basically the change energy, the knowledge, and the passion comes from local communities. 
And the key is tapping into that and lifting that passion up and connecting it to, to those of others so that uh, it can go beyond that. The impact can go beyond that community. You look even vaccinations, which sound like you can design a strategy somewhere else. I mean, most of the progress in West Africa is crafted in some early initiatives with a wonderful local health minister in Senegal and Tostan, Molly Melching's NGO, that actually had built a lot of local community trust with tribal leaders because they embarked on a big effort to reduce uh, the prevalence of female genital cutting in a culturally sensitive and appropriate way. So they had that trust. And then they said, okay, how do we get these village elders to promote childhood vaccination and polio eradication for, for kids in these communities? And they created a roadmap that we were able to expand and follow. So without question, the solutions have to come from local communities. The passion for it has to come from there. And it would be, I mean, this was true when I ran USAID. You, you don't get to design the answers uh, in Washington or Seattle or New York. Uh, but you can kind of use your role at those institutions that have resources and have people and have a voice to insist on people aspiring to actually solve problems comprehensively as opposed to just doing a little bit of good enough because it, it feels good to do. And the book is filled with examples like this. I love the toast on example, but there's many others which I think just re really help to illuminate like what's possible, which is, it's kind of a good moment for this book. And, and I want to get to a question on this because, you know, right now there's a lot of pessimism, I think, in our community. Um, we just had the UN General Assembly recently, everybody from the Secretary General on down, there's a lot of doom and gloom and it's hard to argue with it. <laughs> you know, it does feel like things are falling apart in many ways. Um, and I guess you could look at the career you've had, the issues you've worked on and say, well, you know, Raj got to work in the golden era of global development. You know, of course you believe in big bets. Like you get, you were around when Gavi was started. You helped to create it in a way. Um, you were around when the U S government could do things like PEPFAR and MCC. And, um, and now we're in a very different moment. It feels like we are anyway. And I guess, what would you say to somebody who says, yeah, the big bets worked in the past, but this is not the moment for big bets. We don't we don't have the financial support in the West. We've got geopolitical challenges with China. You know, we got climate. Like we we can barely we can barely take one step in front of the other. Why, why are we going to think about you know these really big maybe unrealistic bets? So I, I I I really firmly believe and wrote the book because I think the opposite is true. I think it's the big bets themselves that generate the momentum that allows them to then become realized over time. And the only way you break through the difficulty of incrementalism or the sense that I call it literally in the book, I call it the aspiration trap, where we just say to ourselves, 50 countries are on teetering on the edge of a debt crisis. We're systematically unwinding progress against five or six of the most um, successful SDGs. I get the macro environment. How do you change the mindset though Instead of saying, okay, well, we're, we're just struggling, we're stuck. And I, I will tell you that when I have successful conversations with leaders, it is the very promise of a big bet that gets them to rise up and do things that feel extraordinary. So I met with Prime Minister Modi and, you know, we, we have a big effort to bring renewable electrification to rural communities across India. For us, that achieves the goal of addressing energy poverty and getting 
people's incomes and job creation to be stronger. But it also achieves the goal of replacing a lot of diesel generation and over time replacing potential coal generation that would otherwise be a real problem for climate change. We, you know, to, to the prime minister, it's, hey, if I can put solar on 320 million rooftops and give every Indian farmer and rural community a second source of income, I will have transformed the nature of rural life in a country that still has many hundreds of millions of people living without enough resources, enough dignity, and enough opportunity, and enough upward mobility. And that's the scale at which you can tap into someone's imagination and have them then make investments with you to do that at scale. I mean, so many leaders who work in this space use the term when they think about why we can't make progress, why things get stuck. They'd say, well, it's the political economy. You know, I've got so many people who say that when it comes to things like the transition away from coal. And I wonder if maybe big bets is sort of another way of saying, like, this is how you deal with political economy. You know, you think big enough that you create a new formula, you create a new roadmap that a, a leader who's worried about coal workers can can see a future where they can still get reelected. They can take care of those workers. They can they can do all the things they need to do because you're you're taking a bet big enough to accommodate the realities that they're struggling with. I wonder what you think about I, I that. I love that, that idea. idea of political economy. I love, the I love the way you said that. I love that idea. I wish I'd written that sentence in the book. So <laughs> I think you're exactly right. I think I think it is. You know, Hillary Clinton used to call it. Used to say privately. You know, we always have to be careful that we don't major in the minors. You know, it's like you have to imagine success at scale, and then motivate people to do the things they have to do to get there. And I think you're exactly right. I think you cannot break through political economy without a big enough vision that taps into the hearts and minds and aspirations of those leaders, not just in politics, but also in the private sector and and in these international organizations that are so important to many of these efforts. So it's just a way of, of getting people motivated. And, you know, think about, I write in the book about a couple of big kind of disasters that required a unique moral response, the Haiti earthquake, the Ebola crisis of 2014, the Somalia famine of 2011. There is, it's in that moment that people really believe we have to do whatever it takes to succeed, right? It's in that moment when President Obama says, don't worry about the budget. Don't worry about, you know, resource constraints in the military. I want every part of this government doing everything it can to demonstrate the power of American leadership right now. That's the kind of sense of urgency and let's go do the best we absolutely can without the blinders and constraints on that we need to try to bring to other types of problems in global development. And that's where I hope Big Bets helps to unlock some of that thinking, a different kind of mindset. Yeah, I was really interested with that chapter when you talked about it, because when I originally thought about Big Bets and I read you know, some of the other chapters, I didn't think of a humanitarian situation as an opportunity for a big bet. But then, you know, you're reminding me of your your former colleague in the Obama years, Rahm Emanuel, who I think used to say, you know, never waste a good crisis. And in some ways, yeah, the crisis itself can be galvanizing and can allow for a bigger picture vision, um, which certainly you, you detail in your experience in Haiti, which... I mean, you were on the job as USA administrator for weeks, right? I mean, you had just started. I think you were in your mid-30s. 
yeah. when you took that job. <laughs> and you have a little vignette where you walk into the Oval Office and you overhear a conversation between the vice president <laughs> and the president about whether or not you're actually qualified to lead this, or you're the right person to lead this role. Maybe you could just tell people a little bit about that, that fantastic right. well, story. Okay, all right. So I, I uh, it, that's all true. I was 36. I was a week into the job. I just visited the USAID Operations Center of 12 Senate-confirmed leaders at USAID. Uh, I was literally the only one there. Uh, and uh, But of course, the agency has so much talent uh, in the civil and foreign service, but we just didn't have political appointees in place yet. And the earthquake happened. And so the president called and said, Raj, I'm putting you in charge of this effort uh, on a civ mil, you know, on a whole of government basis. And here are my expectations. So the next day we're in the first briefing in the Oval Office and I get there, you know, I was up all night. I remember that night, like it was yesterday, you know, all the phone calls coming in and I can tell you about that. But, uh, but I, I was up all night kind of had my numbers because at my heart of hearts, when I when I get nervous, I go to numbers. <laughs> and so I knew how many people needed every every data point anyone in our system had, I had at my fingertips. I go into a briefing with the president, the vice president, um, Hillary Clinton and Janet and Paul Town, the whole team, first in the Oval. And I get there and no one else is there because I was a few minutes early and they're like, oh, go on in. And it was only my second or third like visit to the Oval Office during the administration. Uh, because I was so new on that job. And uh, and the president's looking the other way, and, and so is the vice, uh, vice President Biden. And Biden is saying to Obama, um, are you sure about this guy, Raj? You know, he's, he's in his 30s, and uh, he hadn't done this before. And then the president kind of saw me come in, and so they turn around and came over, and he's like, Raj, great to see you. <laughs> Sit down. But I heard the phrase, and, and I was so nervous. And I feel like I can tell the story because – I went on to really uh, benefit from, admire, and consider both extraordinary mentors and, and Vice President Biden and now President Biden, of course, someone who supports Shivam and, and our whole family on so many different occasions. And I feel very close to them. So I, I feel like I can tell the story. But I, in that moment, I was terrified. <laughs> the world is facing an unprecedented global food crisis. Here at DevEx, we're following the state of food insecurity around the world and the solutions that are needed to overcome it. I'm Teresa Welsh, senior reporter, and I'm also the author of DevEx Dish, a free weekly newsletter bringing you a comprehensive look at everything that matters in the world of food. Each Wednesday, DevEx Dish will be your guide through the interlocking policy, infrastructure, climate, agriculture, nutrition, and human rights issues remaking the way food is grown and distributed. Visit devex.com slash newsletters to subscribe and get your weekly update on the race for a sustainable global food system. One thing I wonder about, because localization is so much on the minds of people who are in the global development community, certainly the USAID community, you're one of the architects of it. You know, you had something back when you were administrator that you called USAID Forward. You were really trying to, you know, modernize the agency and think about how do you get more of the work of the agency to be locally rooted. Um, that effort has continued now over many years. Now, the, the current administrator, Samantha Power, it's a big focus of hers. Do you think of localization as a kind of a big bet? Do you have, would you advise others to think of it that way? Like, what's your takeaway now looking back on that time and now that you have this framework for big bets? 
Well, looking back on that time, I, I'm not sure I would su- I mean, we, we made some real progress in some areas. We, we advanced food aid reform and made that much more local um, in terms of by percentage. And we did change the percentage of USAID funding that went to local partners and local uh, NGOs and local collaborators. But I don't think it was fast enough. It wasn't broad enough. And we were quite constrained in what we could do uh, in that context. So I don't kind of call it a major success. I do think of it as a, a strong intention and, and something from which I learned a lot. What I learned is I think there would be a lot of value to thinking of local capacity development through direct support as a big bet. You know, you, you, there are lots of innovators in the emerging economies in which development community partners work and finding, lifting up and providing capital to those innovators uh, is a big part of building their capacity. And way too much of our capacity building is providing capital to DC or, or European or US-based entities and asking them to train others as opposed to investing in others to let them grow and maybe succeed or, or fail, but to give them a chance to build the capacity and learn how to grow and lead. So I think that would be an appropriate big bet. And I think it would require setting you know, bold targets on deadlines and building unique alliances to get there. I'm just thinking about your role at Rockefeller. Rockefeller is a really fascinating institution because, I mean, it's huge, but it used to be like the biggest. And now there are so many others, including Gates, that were where you were so instrumental in the early days that are just far, far bigger, but Rockefeller retains incredible influence, you know, and and people always say, well, what's Rockefeller doing? People are looking to you. And there's this idea in philanthropy, which is literally known as big bet philanthropy. And I guess I wonder, do you ascribe to that idea that, and is that what you've done or where, or where you're taking Rockefeller? Is it, is it in the direction of, of doing big bet philanthropy? I think absolutely. I ascribe at least to my interpretation of that idea. And uh, as you can tell, and, and yes, we try to do that. I, I will also say I don't consider it necessarily some new wisdom that I bring. You know, when, when John D. Rockefeller created this institution, he had an advisor named Frederick Gates. They have all these letters back and forth from like 1903, 1904. And they were asking themselves, where could science, innovation, and human progress best be deployed to lift up everybody, not just, you know, the beneficiaries of, at the time, a modern economy, you know, industrialization. And their answers are shocking, you know, because it was health, you know, let's create a science-based public health system and public medical education system. It was agriculture, right? Everybody depends on agriculture for food and productivity growth is high in countries like the U.S., which at that point, 50 years after the Murrell Act, had real agricultural productivity growth, whereas most other places didn't. And they said we could bring that science there. And I'm convinced if they were writing those letters today, it would be energy and the energy technology revolution that we all need to survive climate change. And, and yet less than 1% of the world's deployed renewable electrification has gone into Africa. And almost all of next year's deployment will happen in wealthy, in three or four wealthy mega economies. So, you know, it is, it, and, and there are real supply chain constraints that will prevent the rest of the world from benefiting. So it's just shocking. I, I'm not sure we're new to the big bet concept. Hopefully we're giving it voice and we're, uh, interpreting that spirit and applying it, uh, but um, 
but I, I think I think it's a mindset that can help you. A lot of the foundation presidents I talk to, I think they either inherited or they helped to build a model where they just they can't take big bets because their portfolio is spread so thin across so many, you know, well-deserving issue areas, well-deserving capable grantees. And they just end up in a position where they're doing lots of small things, but they just don't have the financial capacity to go and do the big bet. And it does feel like what you've tried to do at Rockefeller is to pick a few big areas like energy and to make a larger bet. Yeah. And that it might sound easy, but but it's not, right? Because you have to, there are trade-offs. You have to say no to other things to say yes to those. Well, it's incredibly tough. And I'm just glad you're saying that. And what's tough is, strangely, uh, foundations and philanthropies that should be society's risk capital to try innovative new things that can lift up lots of people are often the most sclerotic institutions, you know, in modern America and potentially more broadly. And people do get attached to grant concepts and ideas from 10, 15 years ago, you do have a community of grantees that you feel you respect and, and you want to keep supporting. Um, and But if you do the same thing year after year after year, you can't make big bets at scale. So, I mean, we've done, we've had to cut some things and some programs uh, in order to make the big bets we've made, but we made a billion dollar big bet around COVID and the COVID response and recovery. Um, which a lot of it was about testing in the United States and around the world. And and now we've made our biggest bet ever in 110 years was one $500 million investment to create the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet, which was matched by the Bezos Earth Fund and the IKEA Foundation, and then raised another 10 or so billion in blended finance on top of that. So we have a platform that can accelerate a- access to renewable energy in low-income communities in emerging economies. You know, just as we end here, as when we started the conversation, I mentioned that the book to me is kind of like a memoir and a how-to guide together because you tell so many personal stories about yourself and the career you've had, issues you've worked on, but then you you land each chapter with, well, here's what you can go do. And I, my question in some ways is selfish as a parent to two young kids, but I wonder how you think about the next generation, right? People listening to this who work on these kinds of issues maybe had experiences like yours, you know, maybe something similar, maybe they were in the Peace Corps, but they they got to see up close and personal the iniquity in the world, the challenges in the world. They want their kids to get it and to maybe go off one day and do something also that's going to have impact. I mean, you you talk about in the book, you grew up kind of thinking, do I want to be a saint? You know, like that, you, you met like the doctor in India, like these people doing incredible work. Uh, that are very self-sacrificial, or do you want to be a political leader? Like, what's the thing for you? You've got three kids. Like, how do you think about this for the next generation and as a dad? Well, you know, I, in many ways, I wrote this book for them. You know, I'm hoping they're going to read it. (laughs) They've all committed to do so, but uh, but they're not like jumping out of their seat to go grab a copy. Uh, uh, So, you know, I would say to anyone listening, please buy the book, give a copy to any of your kids. Um, I hope that people come away inspired to do big, bold things that help make humanity a better place. And what I see in these kids, frankly, is just a a yearning to be a huge part of the solution. You know, I think they're done with looking up and saying, you know, 
60-year-olds that are running government agencies and, and big companies are the people who are going to solve our problems. I think they, more than any generation, have a sense that it's going to be them if they choose to do so. And what I hope young people get from this is a little bit of a roadmap and a lot of mindset around you can make a difference. You can you know, aspire to be transformational at scale. There are lessons learned. I wrote about big failures because I'm a, I have a lot of them. <laughs> and I, I felt that was the only way to be honest about the fact that this doesn't always work and you're not, uh, and you just have to own that. Uh, but more than anything, I want them to feel like if they choose a path like this, uh, it can be fun, it can be rewarding. And over time, it changes, you know, your own sense of uh, self-contentment, perhaps, uh, even more than, than you might change the world. And I think that's a lesson that I'm learning every day and continue to absorb. Well, yeah, that's a fantastic message to leave us on. It's a great book. Congratulations, Raj. And, Thank you, Raj. And, you know, I got to know you better through the book. I feel like I got to, to give me a chance to reflect on a lot of the issues and themes I we report about at DevX all the time, but just to see it in a different way and to hear that kind of bird's eye view of how some of these things came together. Um, and then to land on, on really practical advice. It's a great book. I'd recommend it to anybody. And it's just been great to have you on the DevX Book Club podcast. Thanks for being a part of it, Raj. Thank you. Dr. Rajiv Shah is the president of the Rockefeller Foundation and the author of Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. You can follow him on social media at Raj Shah. Thank you all for joining. If you like the podcast, please share with your friends and give us five stars. And we really do want to hear from you. Please leave your thoughts in the comments or send me a message on Twitter at Raj underscore DevX. To learn what we're reading next, make suggestions for future guests, or submit questions for authors, be sure to sign up for our DevX book club mailing list, which you can find in the description of the show wherever you're listening to this. If you care about global development issues and you want the latest news, don't forget to subscribe to the DevX Newswire at the link in the comments, where you'll get the day's top global development breaking news, analysis, and opinion, as well as the date of the next book club. Until then, Do good out there, and thanks for joining.